The last time I was here, I talked about the theme of thinning the self. Not so much as a way to lose weight and reach the distorted cultural ideal of being thin and starving oneself and so forth, but um, more as a metaphor for one of these core areas of our practice. And I reminded us that the traditional aim of insight meditation is to explore insights in three main areas. One of them has to do with impermanence. The other one, the second one has to do with the nature of suffering particularly how the roots of suffering are in some kind of compulsive wanting and pushing away. And the third area is exploring what's called anatta, or translated as not-self, that is the way in which our usual sense of uh, being a distinct self, separate from everything, isn't so true, or isn't true in the usual way that we think it is. And of course these three areas are very related. That one of the reasons that we don't see uh, through our usual sense of self-image and what I'm calling the thick sense of self is that we don't really see change and impermanence so much. We don't see how things are continually changing. And in part, we seize on the concept of self because our concentration levels are not high enough to really see the continual flow of experience. And we live in a world of concepts where we, in a way, slow down experience and stay more at a conceptual level, and we don't stay so much with the flow of experience. So these three areas are related. Not seeing the flow of impermanence will tend to have us live in a world where we think, oh, now I see that tree, that car. Oh, there's a solid car there. And we don't see, as we can see when the mind gets very still, we don't see the continual flow of things. And we don't see so much how the world of concepts, the world even of objects, is constructed. We don't see how much we live in a constructed world. Psychologists will tell us that's the case. They'll tell us that children, to use the words of the philosopher William James, live originally in in a buzzing, booming confusion. And children have to learn to solidify the world which is important to be able to do that. And, but we know by looking across cultures that different cultures do it in different ways. We see snow, Eskimos, as it's said, see, what, 40 different varieties of snow. Do we see the same thing? Is our experience simply seeing things as it is? Or are we actually living in a constructed world? The claim of those who've gone to the depths of our practice is that we live in a constructed world and one of the constructions is a solid sense of self. 
not to mention solid sense of objects. We take those as real. We take everything as solid. And part of the going to the depths of experience is to see impermanence more deeply. One can see that when the mind is more concentrated. One doesn't construct in the same way. Then the, there's also a relationship to the second aspect of dukkha or suffering. The claim is that when we grasp onto things, which we will tend to do when we don't see change and impermanence, and we don't see that actually the deepest happiness is more with being with the flow rather than grabbing onto part of the flow to seize it. Oh, I want this experience. I was reflecting on this just a few days ago. I think it was, it was during this retreat I was teaching on loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. I don't remember the exact context, but I was thinking of how there can be some genuine sense of beauty, maybe uh, being with a tree or being in the forest. And then often the mind will want to grab hold of it and we start taking pictures. <laughs> if one is a tourist, right? Like one has one genuine moment of deep contact with awe and beauty and then 49 moments of grasping after it. (laughs) And the teaching about suffering is that there's a lot of suffering which comes from grasping for part of the flow of experience. I want this moment to last forever. I want there only to be Uh, pleasant experiences. Part of the flow of experience is unpleasant. Let's filter those out. Please. That's why, uh, in fact, the life of the Buddha, his parents tried to protect him and actually did try to filter out all unpleasant experiences. They did so because there was a prophecy that he would be either a great ruler or a great sage. And his parents preferred the first option (laughs) as a way of passing on the family uh, title and so forth. And so it's said that uh, when he actually started to break through to seeing clearly was when he went beyond the grounds of the palace on successive evenings and encountered in successive, in successive moments or successive days, I should say, first someone who was ill, then someone who was dying, then a corpse, and then a wandering mendicant in search of awakening. He came in contact with that part of the flow which his parents had protected him from. And some of us may have had that experience of being protected and being able to shield off uh, unpleasant experiences. And maybe some of us, when we've traveled, have uh, sometimes been in cultures where that's not so easy to do. And that can be very uh, challenging sometimes, but also can awaken one. And so these three areas are the three areas of of insight, interrelated, 
because we often form a sense of self around where we grasp after things, where we want to stop this part of the flow. I'm a person who, who only has these kinds of experiences. Or I'm a person who always has pleasant experience. I'm a person who is happy and so forth. I'm a person who always has success. I'm a person who mostly doesn't have success. One can also grasp after the negative experiences. I remember the uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, he said, timidity is such an ego trip. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Timidity is such an ego trip, meaning that we, we we'll grasp after our wounded places or our difficult places, and those will form a sense of self. And so, last time I was here, I explored particularly the last of those three, what is called anatta or not-self. And I talked about it less in traditional terms than in a way which I hoped would be accessible and practical. And I tried to unpack that sense of uh, uh, not-self by using the metaphor of the practice leading to the thinning of the self. I talked about four ways that we could actually practice to thin the self. The first was with being with experiences of flow, which I think are quite common in our experience. And I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. The second was in really tracking for where there is a thick sense of self. So I used the metaphors of thin sense of self and thick sense of self as guides to our experience. Where does the sense of self get strong? Where do we find it as something which uh, comes up in a way which dominates our experience? And then the third aspect of thinning the self, I talked about several other ways of practicing to thin the self. And the fourth aspect I talked about was a mode of awareness which is very spacious and large beyond a sense of self, which can be accessed in our practice. And so what I thought to do today and next time was to go into more depth on these four aspects. And so today I want to go into more depth on on the first two, and then next time go into more depth on the latter two. And then I will retire until April. Um, And so today, focusing especially on that sense of flow and encouraging us to practice that during the week. I want to try to make it very down-to-earth and then also practicing where is there, and for looking for, where is there a thick sense of self. So my aim will be very practical and I want to encourage us to use the structure of our time here to support that more focused way of practicing during the week which I, I like using our, our group in that, in that way. And so I, I did mention last time that for me, looking at these more accessible ways of practicing can be very helpful in this area of talking about a nata or not-self, because conceptually it's a very confusing area. I mentioned that last time, how there... Uh, 
can be um, tremendous confusion, and I find this in my role as a teacher when this comes up, especially just in quick Q&A, like in talks or retreats, there can be a lot of confusion. I mentioned how even the very name of the term, I think, is often used in a confused way. I think it's often called no-self as the basic teaching, which can be very confusing. I think it's an improper translation. It's better to call it not-self because what the traditional teaching is actually doing is pointing to the questionable nature of the sense of a separate, fixed, permanent self. And the Buddhist critique was actually very context-bound, looking at a particular model of self which was dominant in the India of that time. And of course, we have different senses of self. And he was pointing to the way that that sense of a continual permanent self doesn't really hold. But as I mentioned last time, there were times in his discourse in talking with people where he would refuse to say that there's either no self or a self. There's a more nuanced sense in, in that dialogue with a wandering uh, yogin named Vachagata. He refused to answer the questions. Is there a self? He said he didn't answer. Then is there no self? He didn't answer. To me, this points to the more, what I was calling, nuanced nature of this, that uh, clearly there's some kind of individuality, but what's being pointed to is that our usual sense of self is problematic. And particularly the usual sense of self as separate, as enduring, as the basis for all decision-making is problematic and pointing to the way that the deepest qualities that we all cherish, um, qualities of love or kindness or wisdom, actually take us beyond that habitual sense of self. And part of what I looked at last time, we'll look at in more depth now, is that experiences of particularly experiences of the flow or where, where we're actually, but what, let, me, let me rephrase that. I would say that when we actually look carefully at our, what our most cherished experiences in our lives are, they often take us, often if not typically, take us beyond the habitual sense of self to more a sense of interdependence, of flow, of interconnection through love, through wisdom, where there often might be very little sense of self or self-consciousness when we feel unified with the larger-than-human world, with the trees, with the mountains, and so forth, or connected with another person or in a community, and so forth. Those are all typically beyond the separate self. So we'll explore that. Uh, we'll explore that theme uh, today. And again, the language is very confusing often. You know, we often talk about getting beyond the ego, which doesn't translate so well to anything that the Buddha talked about. In fact, it doesn't translate so well from where it purported to come from. One of my pet peeves is that the word ego, as a translation from Freud, is also a bad translation. (laughs) If any of you are psychologists, you may have studied this, that, that the word ego was this really poor translation by Freud's translator 
of a word that in German, I, I'm fluent in German, so I know the word in German is, is the word for I, it's ich. And it has totally different connotations than ego. It doesn't have a connotations of being egotistical, for example. Anyway, there's a whole, you know, all of American pop culture follows <laughs> from that. Pop psychology, right, follows from that for better and mostly worse. And so, so today I want to focus on these two aspects and point to practices. One of them is the sense of looking at experiences of flow as a way to access something like a not-to or not-self. And the second is looking for the thick self. And I want to talk about that in a few different ways. I believe that we have experiences of flow all the time where we're really with the experience. So what are some ways that we manifest a sense of flow? I think it sometimes happens when we're totally immersed in an activity. Yes? Yeah, very much. Yeah, the question was about, am I using the word like the uh, Hungarian, I don't know if he's a psychologist, but uh, uh, his name is uh, hard to pronounce. And it's Chiksen uh, Mahali, okay, I think. And uh, here's, what, here's how he defines flow. Flow happens when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in pursuit of a worthwhile goal. What makes that stretching possible is the development of skills adequate to the challenge of the task. And so there's this sense of being in the flow. What, what are some of the qualities of that sense of flow? There may be a lack of self-consciousness. There may be a lack of self-image. There may be a sense of fullness in the activity. There often might be very wonderful qualities of joy, of happiness, even of uh, mystery or awe can come from those experiences at times. Mostly, though, we're just actually totally immersed in it. And what I want to be encouraging for the next week is for us to actually, in very ordinary activities, see if you can move into that flow experience, washing the dishes. In other words, it's can you just be with the experience? And this would mean taking it in a meditative way when the mind wanders, come, come back. Can one just be with the dishes if you're playing music? Can you just be with the music? If you're taking a walk, can you just be with the walk? And particularly, you might look at activities where that sense of flow is more likely. And last time I talked about how it's quite common in a number of different activities. It can, of course, occur in our meditation very easily as we're just with the flow of the breath or just with the flow in that exercise that we did of just being for about three minutes with whatever comes up and actually feeling metaphorically our experience as a flow like a river. Oh, now there's a sensation in my leg. Oh, there's a thought about tomorrow. Oh, there's my stomach feeling. Oh, and you could even do this right now, you know, as you sit, just tracking without trying to make anything happen, what's, what occurs. So we can experience that sense of flow in meditation and we can do that particular practice. Uh, again, I encourage just to do it for three minutes where you stay with experience 
and we practice what we sometimes call choiceless awareness, where we just stay with whatever is occurring without trying to stay on the breath, without trying to make anything happen. We have to be open to whatever occurs, but we just track it. And the encouragement is to do it for a few minutes at a time. If you try to do it for half an hour, there may not be sufficient concentration, but for three minutes we can usually summon it. So we can have that experience maybe playing music where we're just in that flow. You know, I, I brought some examples from the world of sports, which is quite interesting for me. People have those flow experiences. They even have a term, which is being in the zone, which they have in various sports. I thought I'd read a few more uh, passages that are very interesting from, from uh, some athletes. This is the British golfer Tony Jacklin. He described something like this experience as being in a cocoon of concentration. When I'm in this state, this cocoon of concentration, I'm living fully in the present, not moving out of it. I'm aware of every inch of my swing. I'm absolutely engaged, involved in what I'm doing at this particular moment. That's the important thing. That's the difficult state to arrive at. It comes and goes. And the pure fact that you go out on the first tee of a tournament and say, I must concentrate today, is no good. It won't work. It has to already be there. And this is from the great uh, soccer player, Pele from Brazil. He talked about a day when he experienced a strange calmness, what he called. He said, it was a type of euphoria. I felt I could run all day without tiring. I could dribble through any of their team and, or all of them, that I could almost pass through them physically. I felt I could not be hurt. It was a very strange feeling. Perhaps it was merely coincidence, but I have felt confident many times without that strange feeling. So very interesting. Again, you can find that in the musicians or artists. We'll talk about being in the creative flow, where there, there's a fullness there. And any of how many of us have experienced something like that in our experience? Would anyone like to just take, take, uh, give one or two sentences of what that was like, maybe the activity, and we can maybe Anne use the mic? Anyone like to share just for a moment? Okay, maybe in the back. Yeah, put it right up to your mouth. Uh, I, I experienced uh, this you know, when I was skiing. Yeah. But when coming down the mountain and just being one with the snow. Yeah. And just not thinking, just doing, you know. So it's the qualities of fullness, mm -hmm. not thinking, actually feeling that sense of self not be there. And you use the word one with the snow, right? Anyone else like to share? Please, uh, Debbie. Uh, music. I saw Chris Boti. He's a trumpet player at the SF Jazz Center. And for two hours, I was transported. I, 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 w I was just not at one with the music and not thinking and just being part of it. One with the music, not thinking, part of it, transported. And again, think of this. That's, these are all expressions we could say of anatta, aren't they? And they're also very precious experiences, ones we remember that touch us like that, 
some of those reports, please. What I like about it when I get into my writing or whatever is I'll look up and I'll say, oh, it's one o'clock. Where did the time go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, another quality this in, in, in writing, a sense of timelessness, not navigating everything with time, right? And probably not much of a sense of self when you're in the writing. It's just happening, right? Yeah. Anyone else like to share? Please, in the back. When I'm dancing. Yeah. Um, a little closer I, to your mouth. I lose sense of time yeah. and space. Yeah. And I'm just with my partner. Yeah. Um, I feel like I no longer exist. Yeah. That I become an energetic ball that just moves with the music. Beautiful. <laughs> Whoa. And so a lot of different qualities. Sometimes there's more of a sense of energy. One has a different sense of one's body in this case, right? Different sense of the body. Um, probably, you didn't say it explicitly, but I imagine there's a sense of being almost like one unit with your partner. Yes. Right? Yeah, like there, there's less of a sense of a separate self. And again, these are um, very cherished experiences. You know, these are things which touch us deeply. Interesting, is it? They go against the um, cherished sense of American individualism. <laughs> if I could make a little cultural comment there. But, but they go against that habitual sense of self. And the, was there anyone else who wanted to speak? Or maybe take one more if someone... Wanted to, yeah. Um, well, I work in the theater and just did a show recently. And yeah. speaking of cherished sense of American self, it was our town. <laughs> and I had never done that play before or directed it or I'd seen it in high schools, but it was a beautiful Berkeley production with a multicultural cast. And we worked really hard to find community. And suddenly it sort of, one night it sort of, in previews. Yeah. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I think what happened was it just sort of got gluey. Everybody fell into each other's arms and nobody was... And I think that's kind of what Thornton Wilder was after. And yeah. there was one image at the end. I actually yeah. am in the graveyard, my character at the end, just yeah. sitting quietly. And yeah. the beautiful image of star, a star field above, went above the audience and us. And we sort of were amongst the audience. And I think... For that moment, I really f understood why I do what I do because it, it brought me such joy. Yeah. We, so, weren't, we so, were gluey. We weren't really singular. I can't, I can't even yeah. explain it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, these are all sounding similar, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I like gluey. Was that it? Yeah. So gluey, that's an old Buddhist technical term. <laughs> uh, but. But what's there? There's a sense of, uh, again, of going beyond the ordinary self, gluey, and also joy, right? Yeah. Okay. That there was some deep joy that's accented. And we could hear that from, from everyone, I think, some, some of that. And so, uh, again, we can experience this in meditation in various ways as well, that sense of being with a flow, being with things without the usual sense of self. And again, we... Uh, can't always produce it, much like the uh, golfer was saying, I can't just go out there and produce it. Sometimes it's magical why or how this occurs. And if it's just, if the self says, I want to make this happen, it's kind of like, kind of reminds me of that story I told, I, I've told here before, where um, 
I was asked in a two-week two meditation retreat not to do anything, of course, which is about the self doing things, right? Don't, I said, okay. He said, don't do anything and don't be distracted, right? So, <laughs> no further instruction. This is not near the beginning of my practice. I was already a ways along. And then I found myself really enjoying it. A lot of tremendous joy from letting go of the doer, which is pretty big for all of us, I imagine, or most of us. The doer, right? The, the one who would rather complete the to-do list than reach an awakening. <laughs> um, and I found myself saying, after I was having a lot of joy from experiencing not doing, I'm really doing not doing well. <laughs> so the self was trying to take credit for not being there. <laughs> Which, of course, occurs in meditation. You know, I am a great meditator, very adept at going beyond the self. <laughs> yeah, so uh, humor, very helpful, all this. Right? And so uh, how, do we, how do we get there? What are some practices we might do during the week? I believe that a lot of this being with the flow is actually occurring anyway, but we're just not necessarily noticing it. Right? And so what I invite you to do, first of all, is to be on the lookout for when these experiences occur. You might need to actually set your intentions once or twice or three times a day. Let me look out for these flow experiences. So some of them are already occurring. You don't have to do anything, but it's just to notice them and maybe to appreciate them. And then secondly, we can more intentionally try to open up to those experiences, you know, to Uh, Do it as a kind of practice. Be, as I was saying before, be with the dishes, be with the walk, be with the tree, and let it be uh, more like an experience of flow. That can mean taking as a practice. When the mind wanders, we notice thinking, we just come back, right? We just return. We can practice in meditation by trying to have more of that sense of flow generally. And again, it means continually returning to the experience. We might have the flow for 10 seconds and then we start thinking. We notice thinking, we come back. Maybe we're with the breath and then there's a sense of flow for a little while, then we think. This is how we actually cultivate it because some of the sense of flow comes from the ability to not be preoccupied, to have a certain level of concentration, to stay with it. And that's where we can actually develop the qualities of concentration uh, with our practice, we can also see what takes us away. Uh, so we can, and we can do the practice we did in the guided meditation earlier of just being with a sense of flow uh, through a sense of choiceless awareness for two minutes, three minutes at a time, very short time. Do that, you know, you can do that in your meditation. I, I would suggest trying it first just for that, for that very short time. Then the second uh, type of practice that I wanted to look at is really the complement. And this is, uh, this is seeing, in a sense, what takes us away from being with that flow. Now, what we're looking for in the long run is to have that sense of flow be there in various ways more and more. Again, it's based on the sense that much of what we most deeply value in life is connected with that sense of flow or the not-self experience. So how do we have that be more in our life? How do we have this be not just the rare experience I remember from 16 years ago, but something that's there more and more? 
That's, that's a way to interpret what our practice is about. We're trying to touch these experiences, stabilize them more in meditation and other activities, and then bring them more into our experience moment to moment in life. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful intention. So the second way of practicing is complementary, and this is looking for where the sense of self is what I'm saying, calling thick. And I'm thinking we can do this in three main ways. And, and, and um, the latter two I didn't talk about uh, much last time. So the first is more in a meditative sense. We can, in our meditations and also in the flow of daily life, we can look at the various ways that there appears a thicker sense of self. And I have named some of those ways. We can look at when there's just a lot of thinking or self-preoccupation. And we're not by this attention to the thick self, we're not saying the thick self is bad, let's get rid of it. Okay? I think that's important because that thick sense of self can be there for multiple reasons. Maybe we're preoccupied with and thinking a lot about something because there's something important. Right? Or maybe we have a thick sense of self because in the past we've been wounded and that thick sense of self is there for protection. That's very in a sense, legitimate. In the long run, it's not, we can work through that and heal. But in the short run, that's not to be just criticized and abandoned. That can be very important. And so, um, first we want to just see where does the self appear in this thick way. Notice it. Sometimes with a lot of our thinking, we can notice it and let go. Where are we preoccupied? Where is there a sense of self-image in our experience? Where does that appear in my meditation? Where does that appear in the context of interaction? When when am am I self-conscious? What moments do I find that thick sense of self being self-consciousness? And some may have that more than others. More introverted people will tend at times to have self-consciousness. Oh, everyone's looking at me, right? You know, or oh, you know, and Certainly, you know, from my own experience, I can say that taking a teacher role, I had to work through that because I tend to be introverted. And of course, we know that polls have shown that public speaking is, is considered uh, more scary than death. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to work through that. I, the first time I ever did a significant public speaking, luckily I was sitting behind a desk, but my knees were literally knocking. I've rarely had that experience. They were knocking, like moving two feet and colliding. <laughs> and, and that, was, that was the manifestation of self-consciousness and fear. And it was interesting. So I had to work through some of that. You know, and it's still, you know, probably like you, there's always, as it were, a larger stage where if I go on that stage, I may be a little self-conscious. Cause, oh, you know, like if the Dalai Lama had come in at the beginning of this, <laughs> of this talk, and, and, and I might be a little self-conscious about, uh, maybe not, <laughs> but my guess is, you know, there, there's always that larger stage where something, to use the theatrical metaphor, where something, we think that, oh, you know, well, I've, I've given a talk at Spirit Rock with a small, friendly group on Wednesday mornings, but now I'm invited to give a talk with people I don't know. There are 10,000 people. Am I self-conscious? Maybe I am, right? 
because if so, so we can look for those moments where there's self-image, self-consciousness. One of the great ways to look for a sense of a thick self is look for where we're reactive. So study where I have a strong reaction negatively or positively, you know, in any kind of situation, in meditation, outside of meditation, and so forth. Look for where there's a strong sense of I like this, I don't like this, I want. Again, we're not saying that this is wrong or a problem. We want to study it. We want to study that. We want to study that thick self. And there also are ways, and this gets interesting, um, those are ways in which the thick self appears in more obvious ways. Interestingly, there are also ways that the thick self is there and hidden. And that starts to get interesting and require other methods of looking. So I was thinking of this in two main ways. One is more psychological and one is more social. You know, that we have um, aspects of ourselves that can be very thick that we're not normally in touch with, right? That maybe only come out with certain sorts of situations. This is why, uh, in terms of the sense of the self that's very thick, that's a little more hidden. Uh, This could be the sense of self that is there where there's a wounded part of ourself. And we have a sense of self that's grown up to protect ourselves. And we may not be so aware of that. We may find ourselves reacting a lot when some stimulus comes up. And it may be there to protect what we unconsciously think of as a wound. You know, when someone maybe uh, judges me, or I feel judged, and I have a very strong reaction because maybe there was a pattern where that happened in my childhood, and it's just become this very hard area. And I might not know that there's all this protection that's developed there. You know, and I may have to do some uh, inquiry to find out where that self is thick in, cer- in certain ways. And wherever there's been some wounding in our development, something like that will be there. One of the reasons that I find the work on the judgmental mind so intriguing is that it's a very, very powerful way to explore and open up to, that, to the hidden dimensions of the thick self. You know, when we look, okay, where do I judge and where do I feel judged, I find in working with people, often what's beneath the judgments is something that I, we, uh, that I call core beliefs. I may have a core belief, which is in a sense a sense of self, that I'm not really adequate. Or I may have a sense of self that I don't feel really safe. Right? Or I may have a sense, uh, a core sense of self that I'm uh, better than other people, right? which may be a way, some, something I was taught or some compensation in some way. And when we follow the trail of judgments, we often can uncover these deeper core beliefs, which are typically unconscious. You know? And they can be very, very strong there, and we can find them. And there can be, uh, a lot of them that we look at in the groups I work with are more negative, you know, and so, you know, uh, some stories that I've, I think, sometimes told here, one person I think of had a sense that 
every morning he had the sense, I will mess up today. I'm not adequate. You know, ultimately, when we worked together, we traced it back to what happened primarily between ages 5 and 10 with father and brother. This was present as a person coming into his 50s and 60s. This had been present every day in his life since age 10. And pretty functional person. Successful in work and family and so forth, but still a strong sense of self that was there and hardly conscious, right? And it took some deeper inner work to uncover it, to see the roots, and then to start to shift it, to sense, oh, there is that core belief there, a strong sense of self. This is a very quick way of talking about some of what can be done, uh, I think, partly with the benefits of Western psychology that can really complement our meditative work, or maybe meditative ways of looking at territories of wounds, territory where there are core beliefs. They're not necessarily all negative. Some of them, as I mentioned, can be, we can have inflated senses of self as well. So that's a whole area where we, can, where we need some, often some support and some other methods to look at a thick sense of self. Another area which is sometimes more hidden is uh, or looking at some of the dimensions of the... Uh, of the thick self that are more socially conditioned. You know, and many of us have looked a lot at this, that, that there's a certain social conditioning related to gender, related to class, related to ethnicity. You know, we've looked at some of that when we've looked at the concept of race in this culture. Right? That there, there often can be a thick sense of self, which is often hidden. We don't really know that we have it necessarily. It's something which takes sometimes support and uh, special inquiry to look into. And, you know, uh, many of you, for example, may have looked into gender a lot. You know, think of what it was like 50 years ago. How many women and men saw that thick sense of self that was connected with being a man or a woman, right? A lot of people have looked into it more now, right? That took special support, took a cultural moment, right, to, for that to happen. A lot of people haven't done that. The same would be true about age, about disability, about all sorts of things where there is some social conditioning can be a very uh, strong sense of self. One of the ways we can look at this, it's very interesting, is to look in your own mind when you form a sense of other. There's a concept that's used in some places of looking at where there's something like othering. Where do I create an other in my own mind? Again, it's more subtle. We don't say, oh, there's a thick sense of self. But this can be one of the ways that we practice actually during the week. Look at where, you f- where someone else becomes an other. Maybe it's around age. You know, maybe it's around perception of race or ethnicity. Maybe it's around political view. Right? Those people with those views mm, can be a thick sense of self, right? And these are, these are a little more hidden from us, right? But we can actually look at that sense of others. And we know that historically, most cultures have formed groups of others, typically disparaged others, right? You know, in 
Europe, there were the barbarians, there were the Muslims, there were the Jews who were always others, you know. In this culture, the others were initially especially uh, people of African background, right? And then the, the others were people not fitting in the category of white, right? And we can, but we also can see that around gender, you know, that originally voters in this country could only be male and actually only men with property. So there was an othering that was taking place there for women, for people without property, for, of course, Native Americans, African Americans, and so forth, people of other ethnicities. So something to look at. When does my mind create another? It's powerful to look at that, right? That's the invitation. Uh, I give you for the next week. One of the practices you might do, take a look. Uh, take a look at the other. Notice what your mind does. Does it tell a story? Is there some barrier? You know? And then maybe I'll just close by saying that historically there have been these traditions of taking back the practice of othering. You know, we can think of the practices in the Hebrew Bible of loving your neighbor as yourself, the teachings of Jesus about loving your enemies. These are practices about looking where there's a thick sense of self and taking it back. The practice of metta in the Buddhist tradition where we extend metta to all beings. And those of us who've practiced metta know that we go through a sequence where we increasingly bring metta to those that we might originally other, take as other, right? including difficult people, including people that we just think are outside of the realm of uh, care. Maybe I'll, I'll end with that and invite us in our practice to look at these two broad areas and see what draws you in terms of developing uh, ways of working with that uh, both the sense of flow, which sounds beautiful, right? And I could feel a little bit of a change of tone, right? <laughs> you know, the first one, maybe I should have reversed the order. <laughs> but the first one, the sense of flow, we had these beautiful experiences opening up to them, wonderful. And then the second one was mostly about actually looking at what's somewhat painful, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. Did you feel a little bit of a change in tone and mood as I was exploring that, it's, a lot of that's painful. So good to recognize that. And maybe, uh, yeah, can be good to do, the, uh, do them both. But my uh, invitation would be, see where you're drawn. I say do some of both, but open up to that sense of flow and that sense of those experiences where there's fullness in the multiple ways that, that are optional. And then secondly, Track where you can sense the self is thick and see what calls you. You can do it in a more in terms of what is obviously a thick sense of self, in terms of looking for reactivity, looking for self-consciousness, self-image, all these things. But you can also maybe look uh, into some of the places that are more hidden. Maybe look for that sense of where do I create an other? It's pretty fascinating. It can be painful. It can be hard. So we need to 
at the same time sometimes do metta, self-compassion, and these other practices if we're going into some difficult territory. Pretty interesting, isn't it? But this, this for me is a very ordinary, practical way of getting at that deep and sometimes confusing teaching of a not-to-her-not-self. So let me invite any discussion, questions, observations, insights, further stories of the flow. <laughs> uh, please. Uh, can you wait for the mic? Oh, sure. Yeah, and then we'll, then we'll go to you on the side. Hi, I'm Kathy. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, you know, I finished my first day long over the weekend. Yeah. And um, I've been noticing at when I'm at stoplights, just to notice where I am. And am I, am I with something else? Or am I with me? Yeah. And, and it's interesting just to look at that, and if I can remember at the stop signs, but, um, you know, am I with, you know, where am I? Yeah. I don't know. It was just kind of an interesting practice to start. Right. That, that's a very good foundational practice with all of what we're talking about to say, where am I right now? Where's my mind? Where's my consciousness? Am I, am I present? Am I just uh, lost somewhere? Right? So thank, thanks, Kathy. Yeah. I think uh, in the back and then on the side here. Yeah, hi. Um, thank you very much. My name is Paula. Yeah. And um, I have two short stories to share. Um, and they both have to do with nature because um, for myself, nature is such um, a wonderful teacher for myself. A L- little um, closer to your mouth. Yeah. And I was... Um, walking around Lake Lagunitas just the other day, and it was beautiful. It was wet out, and there were like thousands of newts walking around. And I was walking around the lake at this area where it's very muddy, and someone had taken um, pieces of log and put it around this muddied area so that you can actually use the pieces of log as stepping stones. And as I was stepping over a a piece of log, I saw a newt struggling to come up from beneath the log. And I remember stopping and just noticing its struggle and how it flipped over and you could see its belly and it was like wiggling around and then um, wishing it peace and wishing it success to get out of that, that, that rut. And then I noticed that I was creating a story about that, and I thought, well, what would happen if I just wished it well and just detached and moved on? So I did that, and I was okay with it. The other story I have is, is around Lake Lagunitas and how I stopped at the third bridge and I was looking out at the rocks, and there were like these little puddles of water. And there was something silver, like flipping around, and it was um, a small bass or trout, about four inches long. Mm. And I saw how it was flopping itself from puddle to puddle. Mm. And just to notice its sense of wanting to survive Mm. and traveling that way, and I've never seen a fish do that. Mm. And I just thought it was just really amazing. Yeah. So when I was sharing um, that evening at a class, um, people um, in, in the class were saying, 
Paula, that's you. That's you and how you do life. And I, I was just like taken aback. I thought, wow, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thanks, Paula. There's a, a lot there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I think the, the comment, uh, Paula, the comment was really pointing to how that kind of immersion and the compassion that arises tends to uh, connect you, tends to be connection. That, that's, you know, on the one hand we could say, cause it's like the near enemy of compassion is distance and pity for that poor fish. True compassion is more connective, right? And so, yeah, that's there. Yeah, thanks. In the, in the, on the corner. I notice that when I'm really absorbed in my space or I'm reading, maybe I'm doing, you know, reading a book about Dharma or something like it, someone comes into my space, I feel like, ha, out. Uh, they're other than. Yeah. And how do we protect our space yet not turn in people coming like in a household into that space? I mean... Yeah. So how to, how to have boundaries without doing too much othering, yeah. right? right? So this, this is a koan, not just, for <laughs> not just for households, but probably for foreign policy as well. <laughs> uh, so let's see. So um, yeah, I think, I think what you've done is important is to... to so sometimes people talk about having semi-permeable boundaries, you know, or look to see, I've set a boundary, but it, am I setting it too tightly? Or am I, you know, because there's, there's a value in that boundary to have your own protected space, much as we have here. This is, a, in a way, a protected space. And yet, if we form too thick a self around it, that can be a problem, right? And so how do you have, you know, uh, some sense, uh, first of all, it's looking at when you create that thick sense of self, just noticing what's happening. And then is there a way that I can uh, shift in and out of that uh, protected space? That's what comes to mind. Yeah, because one way is just to make clear that, there, you know, this is my kind of my conflict transformation mind coming up, that there, there's a value in the protection, but there's also a value in not being shut off, yeah. right? not being in, a value in connecting while keeping your own space. How do you have both? Right? So it can be a, a, a koan in the sense that you stay with that. It's, it's how do I... And you have to have creativity sometimes. Again, this is what, but it's a kind of a conflict, but there might be a both-and way of resolving it if you sit with it, I think. So I think what I'm encouraging is not so much to think it out conceptually, but to sit with it and just let it come more out of your intuition and your heart. What is the response? Yeah. Uh, Italia, please.
Hi, my name is John. And um, just want to share an example of the flow that yeah. um, illustrates the thickening of the self and the, the thinning, thinning yeah. at the same time. Where yeah. um, I play the stand-up bass in a group, a uh, jazz group. Oh, wow. We just play for fun. And usually when I'm playing the bass and someone's improvising or playing a solo, um, I'm trying to be kind of creative with my bass line and play it differently um, depending on the soloist. So I noticed that I'm thinking about this, I'm really th thinking of myself. It's a kind of like thickening of the self. I'm, I'm thinking of what I'm doing and trying to be creative and so on. Um, and the other day, um, we were playing this song called Take Five by Dave Brubeck. And the bass part is just very constant. It's the same five notes over and over and over again. And I got into this zone of just playing, not even thinking about playing, and I started listening to the, mm. the soloists for the first time, and I was really enjoying and appreciating what they were doing. They were really working hard and improvising, and I could hear for the first time exactly what they were doing um, and really en enjoying it and appreciating it. And when it was over, it was like 10 minutes of playing the five notes over and over again. And then I said to them how much I appreciated what a great job that they did mm. in improvising. Wow. And of course, they felt good. So I, I thought that was like the thinning of the self and right. really compassion and appreciation extending out to the others. Yeah. So it was like both kinds of experiences. Yeah. That's a, thank you, John, so much. It's a, there's, there's so much in there, isn't there? There's the thinning of the self, there's a thickening of the self, there's that sense of the uh, connection, care, appreciation, compassion when you move into that thinner, thinner self. And, how, and also good music. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, because if, if everyone in the jazz group is thinking, hey, I think I'll do this riff, right? I think I'll go there. It's not going to be so good. <laughs> Great. So, anyone who, maybe time for a sh short one. Anyone who was wanting to speak who didn't have a chance? Okay, then I'll, I think I'll end with a poem. And... Uh, that I was going to read, but I didn't read. This is from uh, Irish poet John O'Donohue, and this is called For Presence. For Presence. Awaken to the mystery of being here and enter the quiet immensity of your own presence. Have joy and peace in the temple of your senses. Receive encouragement when new frontiers beckon Respond to the call of your gift and the courage to follow its path. Let the flame of anger free you of all falsity. May warmth of heart keep your presence aflame. May anxiety never linger about you. May your outer dignity mirror an inner dignity of soul. Take time to celebrate the quiet miracles that seek no attention. Be consoled in the secret symmetry of your soul. May you, may you experience each day as a sacred gift woven 
around the heart of wonder. Let's sit quietly, and what I'll invite you to do is to reflect on where you'd like to go from our session in the next week. And I, I, I would love if people take these practices, what calls you, and set the intention, you know, once or twice or three times a day during the week to focus on one or both of these areas of being with flow experiences more and seeing that thick self in several ways, possibly. So see what your intention is for the next week. And then closing by recognizing that we do this practice of, in this case, of thinning the self. Of looking to cultivate the flow, be with the flow of looking for the thick self. We, we uh, cultivate these practices. We bring this attention to these areas, both for ourselves and for others. and beyond either of those. May our practice be of benefit for all beings, always remembering that all beings includes us. And I have to finish by saying, may the flow be with you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.